Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So we're in this series called Anger City Limits, and the reason that we picked anger as a topic is that we had this sense that anger in our world has just sort of been ramping up. I mean, we were, I think, in general, already a little bit of an angrier society than we were just, you know, years ago. But last year, last year really took a toll on us, and especially with just the stress um, of dealing with the COVID virus and how that sort of upended all of our lives in some major ways. I mean, the one thing is, I mean, it's very clear that people disagree about the different ways to handle COVID and different you know, mitigation strategies and all that. But the one thing we can all agree on is that it hasn't been a fun ride. It hasn't been enjoyable. It's been annoying for all of us and agitating. And for some of us, it's been deeply uh, harmful, different things that it's harmed in our, in our lives. And so as a result of that, I think all of us are a little bit on edge. The pump is primed for anger. And as a culture, I think we just see that. You're out and about, you'll notice that I think people are shorter tempered, and it's very easy to end up on the wrong side of someone. Um, And one of the things that I think as Christians we need to be very careful about is not to let the sort of acidic, caustic anger that is growing in our society ruin our testimony. We need as Christians to be very careful about how we deal with other people in our lives. And one of the things I noticed, so this, you know, speaking of COVID, when the shutdown happened, uh, I, I was, you know, watching things happening on social media, and people very quickly sort of ended up in polarized groups, right? There were the people that said the virus is a hoax and it's no big deal. There were other people that said the, the virus is the end of the world. Some people said you should wear, you know, a mask in every certain in every circumstance, and, and doesn't matter, you know, if you're out mowing your grass, you need to wear a mask. And there are other people that said I will never wear a mask ever in my life under any circumstances. There were people that were incredibly excited to see a vaccine developed. There were people that were very much against the vaccine developed. I mean, it was, and then what started happening was they started lobbing sort of virtual hand grenades at each other online, right? And, and you thought, to your, I don't know if you're like me, I would read some of these threads and then I would think, I would get like 10 comments into a thread that had like 600 comments and I would think, who has time for this, you know? I mean, just the, all of the back and forth and the anger and on top of all that, people were just mean. People were just mean to each other. And as Christians, we cannot afford to be mean to anyone. So we're talking about how do we deal with uh, our anger. And first week we talked about uh, David and Saul. We talked about what happens when somebody just develops an unreasonable anger towards you and starts to develop this sort of narcissistic controlling kind of thing toward you. So we talked about that. If you missed that message, you should really go back and check it out. My dad had a, a, a great talk on that topic. Last week we talked about what happens when you get mad about the wrong thing. And we talked about how the prophet Jonah got mad about the wrong thing. He was sent by God to go preach to this group of people to let them know that if they continued on their path, God was going to destroy their city. And when Jonah went and preached to them, they repented. They changed their heart. They changed their mind. They wanted to follow God, which should have made Jonah happy. But Jonah really wanted there to be a scorched mark on the earth where Nineveh used to be, and he was mad that God wasn't going to destroy him. So we talked about what do you do when you're mad about the wrong thing? What's interesting about this week and next week is we're going to talk about what happens when you're angry about something that's legitimate. I mean, anger is just an emotional response to something that's not fair. 
And we do come pre-programmed with that, right? I mean, you can take a pre-verbal child and they will protest something that does not seem fair to them, right? So we come pre-programmed to protest when something doesn't seem fair. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's how we protest that can be a problem. And so we're going to talk this week about one way that we can protest that's a problem, revenge. Next week, we're going to talk about acting out in desperation. So uh, hang tight with us for these two weeks. I think it's going to be really helpful as we start to think about how should I respond when I encounter legitimate unfairness in my life and I have a real reason to be angry? How do I make sure I don't step outside the bounds of where I should be? So before we do that, though, I want to just set a couple of very basic baselines for what the Bible says about how we should deal with anger, sort of get you a little bit caught up. If you weren't here last week um, or the week before, this will kind of get you caught up on some of the things that we've been talking about, uh, about how God says we should deal with anger. The first thing we're going to look at is in James chapter one, where uh, the Bible says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. So what the Bible, so here's, here's the deal. God is not into redundancy. So when you see a verse like this that is saying, here's how you ought to be, the thing you ought to know is that really implied here is that our software comes pre-programmed to be the other way. So our software comes pre-programmed for us to be quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to get angry. And you can see that in our world, right? Everybody wants to talk. Very few people want to listen, and almost everybody's angry, Right? But what the Bible is telling us is that we need to turn the sensitivity knob of our anger down. We need to be less sensitive to things that are going to trigger us into anger. I was uh, born, I guess, into the cable generation, but I do remember people having the little rabbit ear things on top of their televisions. Do you guys remember those? Some of y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and the rabbit ears was really a loyalty test to what was your favorite television station in town, because you're only going to get one in clear. The others you're going to have to kind of sacrifice on, but you'd pick whatever your favorite station was, and you could get that one tuned in really good. But you had rabbit ears so that you could get the local stations in a market like Wichita. I don't know. I guess it was four or five. In a large market, it could be quite a few more than that. Um, but there was always that one guy in the neighborhood who had to have a satellite dish. And for those of you who are younger than me, I'm not talking about one of those overgrown salad bowls like they put on your roof now. I'm talking about this thing out in your yard that was the size of a trampoline. Like you didn't have a front yard left. Like this huge thing. And the reason that this person had a satellite was it was not good enough for them to pick up local relevant stations. They wanted to pick up you know, signals from outer space. They want to know what the weather's like in Russia. And I have met people whose anger sensor is so finely tuned, it's like they have a satellite dish and they're picking up anger cues from outer space. And nobody else in the room would read that motive in. They think they know why that person said that, but nobody else in the room would read that motive in. Or they think somebody's mistreated them, but everybody else standing around watching it is kind of shocked. Why would you think that? It doesn't make any sense, but they've got that sensitivity knob turned way up. They've got that satellite dish, and they're going to get angry about anything and everything. And aren't those the people that you just want to, you know, stay away from me? It's like a walking minus sign. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. First off, God is saying, if you want to know about anger, the first thing you need to know is that you come pre-programmed too sensitive. And we have to turn down our sensitivity knob to anger. Here's the second thing. And we talked about this last week. The Bible says that human anger does not produce the rightness or the righteousness that God desires. Well, we said last week that all of us are warped, just like this 
carpenter squares, all bent out of shape and warped, because sin entered our world through our first parents, Adam and Eve, we all have a warped gut, in a sense. Our own mindset, our own attitudes are warped. The way that we sense the world, the way that we sense what we should do to fix problems in the world, all of those things are warped. So one of the things that we talked about last week is we said that you got to hand it to our culture. At least our culture did eventually figure out that all of us are warped. That much our culture has gotten. But the problem is they drew the wrong conclusion. The conclusion they drew is that since everybody's warped, there must not be any such thing as a standard. But the Bible says, no, there is a standard and the standard is a perfect God. So if we're tapped into our perfect God, when we actually use him to measure what's going on in our world and to help us understand what we need to do to participate in his solutions, we'll get the right answer. But what the Bible is saying when it says human anger does not produce the rightness that God requires, it's saying when I use my own warped standard to figure out what is broken and then to try to fix what is broken, I will make it worse. And we're going to go a little bit deeper this week with this. Because the Bible says, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to what? To the righteous anger of God. So what the Bible is saying is, if I use my warped sense of this world to try to get revenge for something that somebody has done to me, then I'm going to end up making it worse. I need to leave that to the righteous anger of God. The Bible says, God has said, I will take revenge. I will pay them back says the Lord. You say, now, Jonathan, I, I'm really glad I'm here for this message because uh, probably a lot of people sitting around me need it really badly, but I'm not the kind of person who would ever take revenge on anybody, right? Social media has convinced me that we all have a little bit of a revenge problem, right? Isn't it interesting how quickly, if somebody hurts our feelings or if somebody does something to agitate us, how quickly within ourselves there is the sense that stirs up that I need to fix that. I need to show them, right? And by the way, we have all these fun terms for revenge in our culture. It really makes revenge sound a lot more fun than it is. Like, for instance, you know, fix their wagon. I'm going to fix their wagon. with Their wagon, that's, I'm going to fix it. You know. Can I just be honest with you? I know you're going to be disappointed in me, I'm sure. The truth is, I have never actually fixed anybody's wagon. I've wanted to fix some people's wagons. I've said I was going to fix their, I'm going to fix their wagon. But the truth is, I've found that most people resist having their wagons fixed. (laughs) Or I'm going to show them a thing or two. It's been my experience that most people don't want me to show them a thing or two, right? (laughs) I'm going to teach them a lesson they won't forget. But if they didn't sign up with me as a student, they don't want me to teach them a lesson. (laughs) I'm going to set them straight. There's this idea that somehow... I am going to make what was wrong in this situation right, but the problem is the situation often doesn't want to be straightened out. The person that I'm dealing with doesn't want to be straightened out, and all I'm doing is flailing, trying to fix something that I don't even really understand. So that's why the Bible's saying we need to leave this to the righteous anger of God. But it is true that we have this cultural thing floating around that revenge is a fun thing. We use the term sweet revenge, or it's the dish best served cold. Now, I know that's not true. That's fried chicken. Um, don't get mad, get even. Here's, here's what I've learned, and I, my hunch is it's what you've learned. My hunch is that this is not a surprise to you, and that is that revenge backfires. 
almost without exception, when you try to fix a situation, you're going to have a new problem on your hands. It never feels as good as you think it will, and it always creates new problems. When I was in college, and this is, I guess this would have been 2000, either 2000 or 2001, um, I had a roommate who had a spiritual problem, and that was that he wanted to wake up early on Saturday mornings. None of the rest of us had that problem. But beyond all of that, he was one of these people that uses the snooze to wake up. So he would set his alarm for 6 o'clock, intending to wake up at 7.15. And his alarm would go off like six times, and he'd keep hitting the snooze. Now, I know that that's not sanctified. That's really not spiritual. And we're at a Christian college. We feel like we need to help him develop the joy of the Lord. So what we think is, we got to find a way to fix this guy's wagon. And what we decide to do... Mostly it was me. I came up with this. Um, I pat myself on the shoulder. I, we decided that on Friday night, after he went to sleep, we took his alarm and we set it for 2 o'clock in the morning. And we duct taped the alarm to the underside of his bed. So we had bunks. So he had the lower bunks. So we duct taped the alarm to the lower. This is what happens in boys' dormitories, in case you're wondering, right? Men in college. So we, t- we duct taped the alarm to the bottom of the bed. Now here's the problem. The problem is that my conscious self knew an alarm was supposed to go off at two o'clock in the morning, but my subconscious self lost track of that. So at two o'clock in the morning when that alarm went off, it scared the ever-living crud out of me. I jumped out of bed and smashed my knee on the desk that was right there next to our bunk bed, and that guy never woke up. Sometimes it's funny like that. Sometimes it's not really funny. That the, um, when I was in Oklahoma City, um, I don't know if you know this, but in Oklahoma City, college football is almost like a religion. It's a big deal there. You've got OSU and you've got OU. They both have good teams. And especially when they play each other, everybody goes nuts, right? But back in 2007, both of the teams you know, were doing pretty well. And there were a lot of editorials being written, a lot of sports coverage. And um, the OSU team had this new quarterback, very talented quarterback named Bobby Reed, and um, exceptional, really, as, uh, as a football player. But he got hurt quite a few times in his, in his first season. And on, on top of that, his mom was really close to him. His mom was a single parent, and so she would show up sometime to practices and so forth. And this one editorial writer sort of put these two things together and said, you know, he, he, he gets hurt an awful lot. His mom's showing up. Maybe he's just too soft to be a quarterback for a college football team, you know? Maybe he needs to toughen up a little bit, right? So she writes uh, an editorial about this, and it absolutely angered the coach like you would not believe. Mike Gundy, who's an interesting fellow, head coach of OSU, really, really gets upset about this article and decides that he's going to make this the focus of the press conference. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a press conference when somebody holds one but never thought about what they were going to say ahead of time, but this is exactly what happened with Mike Gundy. He comes in and makes no sense. Nothing that he says makes sense. Have you read this article? I haven't read it. You should read it. I mean, it just makes no sense the way he starts this conference, uh, this press conference out. And he starts saying stuff. He's like, "The, the person who wrote this article is garbage, and the editor who published this article is garbage. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Um, And he starts to defend, I guess in his mind, defend Bobby Reed, defend this player. But actually, instead of coming out and saying, he's a tough guy, this is completely wrong, he made it about, you know, how would you feel if if your son's heart was broken and he's kind of making it about this relationship between a mom and a son. And, you know, honestly, he made the football player sound weaker than he was. He he accidentally did a lot of damage. It made, it almost emphasized what the author of the article 
was saying, even though I don't think it was true. So what's interesting about, and by the way, Gundy guaranteed that this was going to be a viral thing because at one point he reaches this sort of comedic pitch and he says, if you want to write an article, write about me. I'm a man. I'm 40. Now, don't ask me what's funny about that. It just was. I, like, it went viral. Every, all of us were walking around work. And I'm a man. I'm 40. You know, and it was really funny there for a little while. Even at the local Toyota dealership, they had a guy who was always doing the commercials. He looked a lot like Mike Gundy, so they sort of spoofed the press conference. And the guy comes in with the other car dealership's ads. This is garbage. Buy a car from me. I'm a man. I'm 40, you know? And... Um, But if you Google that rant from Mike Gundy, the first thing that's going to come up is a news article where uh, um, somebody's interviewing Bobby Reed, and Bobby Reed said that that press conference was like the end of my life. He's basically saying it it did so much damage. And the guy that the coach was coming in to defend, the coach accidentally did tremendous damage to this person's career. How often does that happen, that we think we're going to fix something, but actually all we do is create a new problem? We're going to talk about a guy in the Bible that this happened for, right? So we're going to talk about a guy named Moses, and Moses has a very interesting life. If you've read uh, through the first few books of the Bible, or if you've watched the movie Moses, um, you know, Moses has got a very interesting job. God is going to use Moses to extricate his people out of Egypt. His people are in slavery in Egypt. God's going to use Moses to get them out of there. God uses Moses to deliver the Ten Commandments to his people. There's all these really cool things that happen in Moses' life. The parting of the Red Sea, really, really neat stuff. And even the fact that Moses was able to live is important because all the baby boys that were born at the time when Moses was born were getting killed. The Egyptians were concerned that the Israelites were multiplying in number too much, and they were concerned the Israelites were going to try to overthrow them. And so the Pharaoh decided that all the baby boys, Israelites, should be thrown into the Nile River, should be drowned in the Nile. By the way, there's always a sort of scriptural marker of a society that is headed down whenever the the life of infants is not valued. But there is this situation where all the babies are supposed to be drowned in the now. Now Moses' mom, when, when she gives birth to this baby, she says, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Now she follows the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Pharaoh said, put the baby in the Nile. So the mom put the baby in the Nile. She just made sure that her baby floated. She put it in a bassinet that she put tar in there and made sure that, by the way, y'all, this is important for us, and someday we need to have a whole message on this. Look, we may live in a society where our kids are not getting the sort of influences that we need, but we need to make sure our kids float. We may have to deal with a system that's not perfect, but we've got to do everything that we can to raise kids that love God. And, so, and, and that's what Moses' mom was trying to do. And I honestly think she only had it figured out a day at a time. But the interesting thing is God had a long-term plan. And when this baby is floating around in the Nile... Pharaoh's daughter comes out to take a bath. She sees this baby. She's absolutely smitten. with. I'm, I'm going to adopt this child. And the Pharaoh thinks one kid isn't going to make a difference. How little did he know? And, and Moses grows up in, his, in the Pharaoh's palace. A huge, huge deal. Because in Egypt, this was the most financial well-off society of the time. It was the most educated society of the time. And Moses gets every benefit, which is going to be very helpful when God uses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And God's got this immense plan for Moses, but Moses makes a mistake early on that costs him 40 years, and that's what we're going to talk about. Somewhere along the line, Moses learns that even though he's been an adopted 
into the house of the Pharaoh and he's grown up as an Egyptian, somewhere along the line he learns that he is a Hebrew. Maybe he learned that very early in his life, maybe he learned it later, I don't know. But he learned that he was a Hebrew and he wants to go out and check on his people. And you should know that the Egyptians are abusing the Israelites terribly. I mean, beating them, trying to keep them under their thumb, making them do work that wasn't even necessary just to oppress them. And uh, Moses goes out to check on his people and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Do you see the spark of the moment of anger, right? And the revenge. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. And the man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Turns out somebody was watching. Then Moses was afraid, thinking everybody knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh had heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Now, a lot of good things happened in Midian. So it's not that God didn't do anything for Moses during the 40 years he lived in Midian, but it did press pause for 40 years. So it's really important for us to ask ourselves, what can we learn about how Moses handled this situation? First of all, was Moses wrong to be angry in the first place? No, he wasn't. Anger happens because we sense something isn't right. Was it not right that his fellow countryman was a slave and was being treated this way? No, absolutely was right for Moses to be angry. It was right to recognize that it wasn't fair. We would worry about Moses if he didn't realize that it wasn't fair. So that makes sense. The problem is that revenge happens because we think we can fix it. This is one of the challenges that I find as as I get older and I learn more about the way life works is that it's so easy to think that problems in life are simpler than they are. And as a result of that, it's so easy to think that we can fix them. I, you know, want to believe I can fix anything that goes wrong in my house. I walk into Home Depot, I get this immediate sense of omnipotence, right? I'm here where all the tools are, where all the supplies are. I could probably do anything that I need to do to my house. But my wife could tell you, no, there are a lot of things that Jonathan just shouldn't touch, right? Because if I don't understand a problem and I try to fix it, I will generally make it worse. And what's pro- well, the issue here is that God had a long-term plan. Moses killing this Egyptian was not what God had planned, and it, and it cost Moses 40 years. And that's what we need to figure out. It's not whether or not I should recognize something as being unfair. No, that's because God, I am God's child, and God is just. So the reason that I notice things not being fair, if God says something isn't fair, it's not fair, and it's right that my spirit resonates with that. It's right that my spirit has a sense of injustice. That's true. But I need to be very careful not to go off script. God is doing something in this world, and I want to be a part of what God is doing to resolve injustice. I don't want to go rogue and try to resolve injustice on my own and then end up causing more problems. And that's what happened with Moses. Moses thought he could fix it, but he didn't know what he was doing. I've got this picture here of a painting. This is a a Spanish Baroque painting by an artist named Murillo. It's very, very valuable. So valuable that if you have a good copy of it, that copy is valuable too. If you have a really um, well-done artist copy of this painting, it's valuable. And there was a person who had a copy of this painting done by a, a good artist and Um, but needed to have it cleaned. So if you need your painting cleaned, you send it to an art restorer, but this person didn't do that. This person sent it to a furniture cleaner. And this furniture cleaner, this is is supposed to be Mary from the Bible. This furniture cleaner cleaned Mary's face off, literally. But they thought they could fix it. 
And at the time of these pictures that I'm getting ready to show you, there had been two attempts to fix Mary's face. And you're going to think that I'm making a joke, and I'm not making a joke. You can look this up online. This is for real. These are the first two attempts to fix Mary's face. And immediately when you look at that, you go, that's like a cartoon. The, you don't understand the, the intelligence of the artist. The talent of the artist is so huge. And somebody thought that they could somehow duplicate what the artist was trying to do. And you don't have the ability to do that. And this is what God wants Jonathan to know. You'll look at a situation and you'll go, this isn't right. And you'll be right that it isn't right. So get on board with me about what we do about it. Because if you think you have the talent and the ability of God Almighty, you're going to end up drawing a cartoon and it's going to be very unfortunate. It's going to end up costing. The Bible says this, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Sorry for all the stories today, more than usual, but my, when, when uh, I was, I don't know, I guess I was eight or nine. I might have been a little younger than that. And we were going to go car shopping, and my dad took me to go car shopping, and we had this Volvo 240 at the time, a little bathtub of a car, driving it to the dealership to, you know, get it evaluated for trade-in, maybe buy a car or whatever. My dad told me on the way that, there's a number. We won't get any more for this Volvo than this number. This is, this is going to be the top number anybody's going to pay. So we're sitting across from this guy who's working the numbers like they do. And I see him write down the trade-in number. And I say, Dad, you will not believe this. He just wrote down $1,500 more than the highest number you thought we could possibly get for this car. And my dad said, don't help me, Jonathan. <laughs> There's a sense in which God is saying, don't help me. Participate in what I'm doing, but don't try to do it for me. There are three things that Moses did that should have been a warning sign to him that he was going off script. Because that's the problem here. The problem is Moses went off script. God had a plan for Moses. He had a plan for his people. And so long as Moses was willing to cooperate with God's plan, and I, I still think Moses wasn't even signed on yet. I think Moses' real tie-in to God comes later in the story. But I'm just saying, if you zoom out and you take a Google Earth view on this thing, I think that as long as Moses is signed on to God's plan, things work really well. But whenever Moses goes off script, and this, by the way, is not the only time, later on, if you know the story of Moses, you know that Moses is going to take God's people into the promised land. And this is something that it, this had dominated 40 years of his life, taking these people through the desert, wandering through in this journey that should have taken far less time, and getting to the promised land was all Moses had lived for. But there was a point at which God's people were arguing and complaining and, and belly aching like they'd done for so long while Moses was leading them through the wilderness, and we don't have water. And, and so God told Moses to speak to the rock, and there was gonna be water for the people to drink, but Moses got so mad that he yelled at the people and he took his staff and he beat the rock. Problem is, later on the Bible tells us that the rock was Christ. Now I don't know exactly how that works, but can you sense that this is the problem? We go off script and we end up causing a lot of damage. You know, over the years, my dad and I have sort of joked with each other that there's probably a lot he, couldn't, he could have gotten away with. I'm not even sure he might have gotten away with hitting one of the people that was complaining, but you don't get away with hitting God. And as a result, he didn't get to go into the promised land. I'm just saying, it's really important that we stay on script. So there are three things that Moses did that should have immediately been to him a sign that he was going off script. 
And these three things still matter for you and me today. So let's check these out. Here's the first one, and that is that he had to look both ways. Look at this. He said, he looked in all directions to make sure no one was watching. Well, first of all, he wasn't a very good lookout because, first of all, we know that one of the Israelites was watching. But second of all, even if nobody had been there, somebody would have been watching, right, church? Because God was aware of what was happening. And there was a sense in which Moses thought, if nobody's looking, it doesn't really happen. Sociologists tell us that there is an uptick in the use of anonymous screen names online, right? It's like a throwback to the 90s. That people are setting up screen names so that they can comment on threads and comment in chats and rant and rave, but they don't want anybody figuring out who they are. There's a sense in which it's like, I, so, long as, so long as I can remain anonymous, I can really let you have it, but I can't let you have it and you know who I am, right? It's, it, it's almost like Moses is saying, I'm going to make things right, but don't tell anybody, right? I don't want anybody to know. It's funny how as long as it's you and the person you're mad at, anything seems appropriate. You get another audience member and suddenly nothing seems appropriate. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. There, there was a time... Uh, years ago, my wife and I were having a tiff and a, a spat, a snit. It was a fight. It was a fight. We were having a fight. <laughs> and uh, so back then, in those days, if I got mad enough, I would want to cool down. I would, I would leave the house. I'd get in my car, I'd drive to Walmart, walk up and down the aisles, try to cool off. Even if it was 1 o'clock in the morning, the people at Walmart are like, Jonathan, Wendy must be fighting again. He's pacing up and down the aisles. You know. Um, which eventually I learned that was not a helpful strategy and had to sort of change the way that I did this. But at the time, that's what I did. I, got, I, I went out the house, I got in my car, but before I left, I felt the spirit of the living God encouraging me to send a text to Wendy to explain to her everything she had done wrong. <laughs> Which I did. And I explained several things she could have done better than what she did. I gave her some suggestions for things that she could have said instead of the things that she did say, things that she could have done instead of things that she did do. And I put some angry emojis in because you want to make sure that the tone gets through, you know. Um, and I press send. You ever send a text to the wrong person? So I, I sent that text to a new springer uh, who I'm friends with and I'm thankful to still be friends with. If you're watching today, I appreciate you very much. Um, putting up with me. But the funny thing is, as long as that text was between me and Wendy, it felt completely appropriate, right? You know what this is like. As long as it's between you and your kid, it feels completely appropriate. As long as it's between you and your spouse, it feels completely appropriate. So long as it's just between you and the person you're mad at, anything goes. But the moment somebody else knows, then you're kind of backing off. Well, I don't know if I want to say that. It's the tone we get with our kids that we wouldn't want our neighbors to hear. It's the tone that we get with our spouse that we wouldn't want our pastor to hear. It's the, the things that we say online that we, we just don't want to make sure that anybody could really identify us as the person that said it. And if you think about it, the only reason that we're doing it anyway is to make us feel better. Can I ask you a question? Moses killing this guy, does that solve the problem? No. What's going to solve the problem is when God gets his people out of Egypt. Killing this one guy isn't going to fix anything. Moses killed this guy because it made him feel better. At least he thought it was going to make him feel better. How often do we do these things not because it's going to fix the problem, but we just want to exert that angry energy. We want to feel better. And then after we do it, we realize we don't feel any better anyhow. But he had to look both ways. Here's the second thing. He had to up the ante. 
You got to up the ante. I don't know what it is about revenge. Maybe you could explain it to me. I'm sure there's some sort of psychological basis here for it, but there's, there's something about revenge where we always have to take it to the next level. We never, we never match force for force. We always have to ratchet it up one more tooth. We always have to have the last word. We've always got to take it up just one more notch. And I don't really understand why, but it is definitely part of the program that we always have to push it just a little more. That's what happened with Moses. Moses killed the Egyptian. So Hebrew scholars tell us that the word killed here and the word for beat. Earlier you saw the Egyptian was beating the Hebrew. The word beat and the word killed here have the same root word. It means to hit. It's just that in this case, when we talk about Moses killing the Egyptian, it means he hit and killed him. It's like he raised it up a notch. The other guy was hitting this Israelite. Moses hit him and he had to up the ante and he had to kill the guy. And if you think about it, if he wants to go back to the palace tonight, he has to kill this guy. He doesn't have any option. The moment that he intervenes in this, if he wants to go back, and here's the deal. A lot of us, we're not living a very, what's the word? Our, our, our life doesn't match completely because we want to be really angry with some people, but we want to have a really good relationship, and we've got this triangle. So Moses wants to go back to the palace and be buddy-buddy with the guys that are guarding his room, and he wants to be buddy-buddy with the Pharaoh, but also he wants to be able to kill this guy, and he's trying to keep all these relationships, all the plates spinning at the same time. Can I tell you that that does not work? You've got to be genuinely who you are. He had to up the ante. Why is it a problem to up the ante? Because there is nobody holding a sign that says too far. It would be lovely if that was the case. It would be lovely if there was somebody to tell you, don't go past this, this is crossing the line. And the problem is when we're in a battle trying to up the ante, right? So I've seen this in my office with couples fighting with each other. Their volume does this, right? Their volume keeps getting higher. And they'll also start to throw out levels of history, right? The stories, the first couple stories they're throwing out at each other in front of me, they're only a two or a three. After a little while, they're throwing in the eights or the nines. Do you remember when you said this about my mom in 1992? That was such a huge deal. I've never forgotten that, right? They keep ratcheting it up. But you know this. You have that feeling in your stomach when you went, uh-oh, I went too far. Where did I go too far? I crossed the line at some point, and you realize there was nobody to tell me. There was no sign to say I was going too far, and I crossed the line. This is the problem with Moses. There was nobody to hold out a sign to go, Moses, too far, stop. And then this is the last thing. He had to bury the evidence. The Bible says he hid the body in the sand. By the way, bodies don't tend to stay buried in the sand. Right? Things that you bury in the sand have a high rate of resurfacing. It's just a physics thing. So this was not a plan that Mo- this wasn't some brilliant plan on Moses' part. This was after it happened. Suddenly, have you ever had this experience? You vent that anger, and suddenly the anger is not there anymore. But the problem you just caused is, and now it's like, well, how do I make this go away? I mean, I talk to husbands like this all the time. Right? They break their wife's spirit. And then they call me and they go, how do I make it go away? How do I make her feel better suddenly? It doesn't work that way. We can't just immediately flip a switch and have the world go back to the way it was before I crossed the line. And so Moses now has to deal with the fact that he's crossed the line. He's got a body on his hand, so he's got to bury the evidence. It was a temporary solution at best. How many times do we cross the line and we say, I just want to make it go away? 
there's a theme in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. As early as you can go in the Bible, this theme is there. And that is that if you have to hide what you've done, something's wrong. There are some Bible scholars that say maybe Moses was in the right to kill this Egyptian. I don't think so because he had to hide him. There's just the theme in the scripture and themes are very important in scripture and they carry meaning. And that there is one theme in scripture that you will never see backed off from and that is that if you have to hide it, that's a problem. If you have to hide what you've done, that's a problem. Some of us our anger gets the better of us and we get revenge by using our tone of voice or by saying that thing that we know is gonna push their buttons or by doing something that we know are gonna push their buttons but then afterwards we feel bad about it and we wanna make it go away but we can't and so we just sweep it under the rug and try to hide it and make believe like it's not there but it is there. If there's a lesson that Moses could teach us it's that moments of revenge bring seasons of consequences. It only took a minute to kill this Egyptian, it took 40 years before he could get back to where God had him in Egypt. And I gotta believe that for all those 40 years, he was thinking about all the different ways he could have handled that. I could have done it so differently. And what I'm telling you right now, parents especially, we could have just really for just a second, parents, could you, could you tune in for just a second? Because in, when, it, when anger is a problem, I'm really concerned about our culture that anger with parents is becoming a problem. I think part of it is we've just had a rough season. The COVID thing has been rough. But one of the challenges is often our anger leaks onto the people that we're closest to. And I'm watching that parents' anger is accidentally leaking out onto their kids. And here's what I want to tell you. Your tone is so important. The way you treat your kids is so important. It can be moments where you lose it, but there may be a season of consequences. We need to understand that what we do right now really does matter. Okay, so let's talk about how do we handle this. Well, the Bible says, first of all, don't sin by letting anger control you. In another translation, it says, in your anger, do not sin. There's the sense in which you are going to be angry. There are going to be times when that's appropriate. You're going to encounter unfairness. You're going to encounter injustice. And when that happens, part of that is because you are the child of a just God. So it makes sense that you're going to feel that in your spirit when you encounter injustice. But it just says, when you encounter that, make sure that you don't let the anger drive the car. Let God drive the car. It's okay to be angry so long as God's driving the car. The problem is when we let anger drive the car and then we end up in big trouble. It says anger gives a foothold to the devil or really literally gives the devil an opportunity. In Romans it says don't let evil conquer you, which is what we've been talking about, but instead conquer evil by doing good. All right, well what could I do that's good? And by the way, This might be a good homework exercise. Usually I'm encouraging people to spend less time on social media. But this might be actually an opportunity to spend more time on social media and actually do something that will change your spirit and you'll feel it changing from the inside out. If I can't take revenge, what should I do? Check this out. This is from Jesus and this is mind-blowing. I can't imagine accepting these words unless they came from Jesus himself, but they do. To you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. So here's the thing. Try this and see if it doesn't blow your mind. Get online and bless people who are in the process of setting themselves up against you. You know what to bless means? It means to say good things about. I'm going to say good things about people who are saying bad things about me. By the way, I would love it if our political system could get this one straight. 
because we've seen more vitriolic anger from, from all sides of the political spectrum. We, if only we could have a country where people would bless those who say bad things about us. So we would be pattern breakers, cycle breakers, to say, I'm not going to keep doing this. We're going to quit ratcheting this up, and I'm going to say good things about people who say bad things about me. I don't have to play along. Or to pray for those who are, this really means to hurt, to hurt you physically or to hurt your feelings. Right? I don't have to let somebody keep hurting me. I can have strong boundaries, but you know what? In the middle of setting a boundary with somebody who's hurting me, I need to be praying for them. And I promise you this, if you pray for somebody who's being difficult with you online, it will change your heart toward them. It's very, very difficult to resent somebody and pray for them at the same time. Very difficult. And God's saying, this is, this is how it'll change. If you want it to change, if you want to conquer evil by doing good, here's a place to start. Love your enemies. What does it mean to love your enemies? When I talk to a, a bride and groom when they're on stage and I'm performing their wedding, I tell them that God teaches us what love is. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says that God demonstrated his love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So real love means sacrificing in the face of imperfection. What are we sacrificing? I'm sacrificing my ability to fix it the way that I want to, the way that my gut wants to fix it, the way that my immediate reaction is to fix it. And I'm sacrificing that so that God can have his perfect will in this situation. And I'm doing it because if God loves me, then I can find it in my heart to love them. Now here's the thing. This is what I want to leave you with. There is nobody in this world who can force you to be angry with them. You could leave this room today. I want you to do a mental inventory. Who am I mad at? Who am I angry with? And I don't want you to think about releasing them. I want you to think about releasing you. It's time for me to let that go. I'm going to tear some bills up today. I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna participate in God's debt forgiveness plan. There's some people that have wronged me. I'm gonna tear up their bill. They don't owe me anymore. I'm I'm gonna declare as I walk out of New Spring Church today that I hold no hostility to this person anymore. They may have hurt me, but I want God to bless them. They may have caused me difficulty, but I want God to elevate them. I want God to change the world through them, and I'm looking forward to seeing it happen because they don't owe me anymore. Nobody can make you be angry. With them. Father, thank you so much for the lessons that you've taught us this week. Open our hearts as we continue to ask you to examine our hearts and to show us where there are pockets of anger. Help us to live out your love for the world around us. And we'll thank you in advance for the outcome of that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here this week. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.